Welcome back to Unleashed. And remember, we are The Resistance. I'm your host, Brent Henderson. And this week is going to be really, really cool. It's called Lost at Sea. And this is episode three. Hey, that rhymes. Episode three, Lost at Sea. What was that movie uh, where they kept rhyming Princess Bride? Oh, Now stop yeah. rhyming and I mean it. <laughs> Anybody want a peanut? Remember that? Yes. Oh, yeah. I love What that a movie. classic. Andre the Giant. But this is going to be really cool this week because... We're going to be going back uh, to Alaska. You know, the last two weeks we've been in Africa, but we're going to be going back to one of my favorite spots, which is Alaska. I think actually the next two episodes we're going to be there. Uh, so this is going to be fun. For you guys that, that love Alaska, there is nothing like Alaska. It's, it's my favorite place on the entire planet. Um, if you've never been there and it's on your bucket list, make sure you get that off your bucket list. You need to go. But we've got, let's see, um, you know, we started week one. And we talked about those three words, and you guys by now are, are getting used to this. It was identity, identity, identity. And that's the core of who we really are. It's the main thing that will be woven through every episode we do until the day I take my last breath. I mean, it's, it's going to be there. Identity is the main thing to remember, uh, who we are in Christ. And then the second week, uh, we talked about the big lie. And if you remember, the big lie says that my performance plus other people's opinions equals my self-worth, which we said was a lie from the pit of hell. Because, you know, if that's the big lie, then the big truth is, no, it's God's performance and God's opinions that equals my self-worth. So it's so key to remember that. And we do a question, you know, every single week we bring in questions from you guys, and we hope that you will go to our podcast at Unleashed Men and, and send us your questions. But we have a question that came in for this week, and it's going to tie right in with what we just covered with the big lie. And I know, Eric, I think you've got that. I've got it. Okay, this question is Don from Illinois. Don wants to know, how do you deal with the haters when you're trying to do your best and help others remain humble as possible? Well, I'll tell you what, it's something we all deal with. We see people out there, we're trying to do good things, and people are you know, trying to shoot us down. They always, what's that saying? It's always the, the Christian army that shoots their wounded. Yeah. And here's what I've learned. They don't just shoot their wounded. You know, after they've shot their wounded, many times they'll drag them through the mud and then hang you up as an effigy on the end of town for others to see, don't you ever do what they did or you're going to pay this price. And man, I mean, who wants to be a part, you know, of, of a body of believers, you know, like that? And that's why we, frankly, that's why we have so many people going, you know, I'm not going to go back to church because I've been hurt by that kind of stuff. Right. You know, everybody's got sin. There's nobody out there that doesn't have sin. And uh I think with the the, be, the beginning of, of understanding who we really are is the beginning of understanding the grace that God gave us and that we have a new identity. We've been changed. But his question, um, you know, what do you do when the haters are doing this stuff? You're trying to do good stuff, and it seems like the bigger the platform you get, the more people go after you. Someone said something to me one time, and I think it was something like this. It's none of my business what other people think or say about me. And really, at first you're like, wait a minute, I, I need to know. Why? Why would you care what they think about you? Because the only one whose opinion matters is whose? It's God's. Right. You know, and we, until we can really get to that place where we understand that he is the only one that matters, ultimately, um, we're going to struggle with the big lie, that my performance plus others' opinions equals my self-worth. So, yeah, renew, renew, renew. In, in episode next week we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about, you know, declawing the lies of the enemy. So tune back in for that one next week. You're going to love it. It's going to come back and apply right to what we just talked about. Well, anyhow, let's let's go ahead and get started to this episode three, uh, Lost at Sea. And the backdrop for this um, is going to be out of uh, Seward, Alaska. And if you've ever been there, uh, maybe you saw the uh, the movie years ago with Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Um, what was that? Uh, Hunt for Red October. And it's if you one. ever saw, oh, it's an awesome movie. 
you know, you see that submarine coming in. Well, that's actually the bay that comes into Seward right there. And that's where that was that shot that with the snow covered mountains and everything. I've spent a lot of time in that area, you know, whether it be sea kayaking, fishing trips, whatever. But it is probably the most picturesque place that I have ever been on the earth, bar none. And, you know, I've been to a lot of places in Alaska and I used to work, actually, I used to work up in a uh, 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 little fishing village, uh, King Salmon, um, back in the eighties when I was in college, I would go up and work in my summer times and make money. And my friend Ralph and his dad, you know, he was the, the captain of the boat and we had a, and I'll do a story on that sometime. Cause there's some pretty wild, I mean, like we're not already doing pretty, you know, pretty crazy stuff as it is, but some really off the hook stuff. But it's, it's, it's a place like no other. You know, on that trip, I remember in, in the one summer, it was the summer of 85, and we had put out in Bristol Bay. Now, here's the thing. When, you, when you're out there fishing with these commercial fishing boats, these salmon boats, you know, there's probably close to 700 boats that can be out there. When the fishing game opens up, you know, they say, hey, for the next 12 hours, we're going to open it up where you can fish. Or the next 24 hours, your boat's in the water. You're out there. You're fishing. Um, you know, we had like 300 feet in that or 300 yeah, we had three 100-foot sections in that out. So uh, would it be 100 yards worth of net? And these are gill nets. So when the salmon swim in and, and they, they get their face in there, their gills get stuck, they can't back out. And so you watch the top of the corks, you know, on the ocean. And when the corks start to go down low in the water, you know that you've got a lot of salmon in there. And you'll begin to see the surface of the water. It looks like popcorn. It's really cool, just snapping on the surface. But this one day, we had been, we had been in dry dock. We were getting the boat ready for fishing season. And we put in the fishing game, you know, it came over the radio, they'd open it up, and we went on out into the bay. And there were two Italian wooden boats. I know we were fishing, you know, um, in an aluminum boat, which most of them are. And they were out there in, in these two wooden boats, and they had been putting caulking in the seams, you know, and it needed to, to have more time to dry. Well, when they opened the season up, you know, of course, everyone wants to make the money. That's why you're there. And so they put in too soon and went out. And they were, you know, the, the salmon were just nailing it. And we were pulling in brailers, you know, and just unloading these, you know, thousands of pounds of fish. And they had gotten too many fish in their brailers in the bottom of their boat. And it began to separate the caulking in the seams. And the water began to pour in. Now, you're out in the open ocean, right? I mean, this is not like on a lake. This is in the open ocean. You know, and you've got some really nasty tides coming in and out of here. And the next thing I know, I see that boat going down. They're calling their sister ship. They're throwing all their Lorenz, all their gear, everything they've got, the electronics over onto this other boat, and they jump off. I have pictures. And at the very end, you see just the nose of the boat sticking up. That's all that's left. And the next thing you know, it's gone. I mean, this is the real deal. This is not like, you know, just working, you know, around the house and your yard doing some stuff. I mean, these kind of things when you're out there. You can make one bad choice and the second one will kill you. That's what it's like in some of these, these locations we're going to be going to. So, But this one, we're going to go back to Seward. And, you know, Seward is, a, is an amazing place. I go fishing with a, a, or a, a company out of there called Miller's Landing. If you ever go, they're a great one to look up. Um, but we would take, you know, groups of guys out and go fishing. And we come back, and I think, I think actually we have a photograph that I had sent you, I think, to put up on the, on the, for the episode. You'll see when you log into this and you see the episode, I'm standing there with a halibut, and that halibut's 105 pounds. You know, we're throwing 10-pounders away. I mean, we call those chickens. I mean, you think catching a 10-pound fish on a lake here, you know, in, in the, you know, the U.S., you know, that's you know, like a bass or something. That's a huge fish. Right. Those are tiny. You know, we're, we're throwing them back. So when we start catching, you know, 30, 40-pounders, you know, now we're getting into some, some uh, halibut that we're keeping, and when they start getting big like this, 80 to 100 or, you know, 200, 300 pounds, 
we had a, a, a 410, you know, with, with slugs in it that we shoot them with when we bring them up alongside the boat. You can't even put those things in the boat because when they come in, if you haven't shot them when they're that big, they start snapping around. They'll break your ankle. They'll break your poles. I mean, they, you can't believe the power. They're just like one big chunk of muscle. It's, it's amazing. But, oh, man, I guess, sorry, a little, like, a little sidetrack here. I didn't go on my ADHD. We were out in the Zodiac in Cook Inlet one time fishing, and we brought up an, an, an enormous uh, halibut, and I was bringing this thing up over the side, trying to hold it up. Now, we're six miles out in the Zodiac. If you don't know what a Zodiac is, it's like what the, the Navy SEALs use, and it was about, about a 15-footer. You know, they're made of hypalon. They're inflatable. And we're about six miles out in Cook Inlet. Now, you know, the water temperature is like 38 degrees, You've got the second strongest tides in the world coming through there. It's cooking that's 30 miles wide, 100 miles long. And, you know, the, the water depth is changing at enormous levels, you know, every 12 hours. So we had a slack tide. We've been fishing. And luckily, we were able to kind of just, you know, sit there and drift a little bit. And I'm pulling this salmon up. And the tide had just started to pick back up again. And we were getting some rollers, you know, one and two foot rollers, which is making the boat just kind of go up and down and up and down, which made it really difficult when you got a fish up over the side to shoot it. So I pull this fish up over the side and my buddy takes out his nine millimeter and he goes to shoot it and the wave hits the side of the boat, just kicks us sideways. And when he discharged, it missed the side of the boat by maybe an inch. Now, we're not fishing near anybody at this point. We're just out there by ourselves in this Zodiac. So you got to understand the water temperature is about 38 degrees. You've got about 30 minutes in that water if you don't have an emergency suit, you know, that you put on before you're going to be hypothermic and you're going you're gonna to drown. You're done. That's it. So it's this kind of crazy stuff that can, that can happen. So this, I thought, this trip in Seward is going to be a little safer than these other trips. So my buddy had a 29-foot uh, bay liner. You know, this wasn't an aluminum boat. This was fiberglass. And most of the boats up there are aluminum because, you know, you've got, especially in this area, uh, we, we call them bergy bits. You know, you've got some, some glaciers that are calving, and those pieces of ice are floating out of these fjords, coming out into the open ocean, and then, you know, moving out. Now, the glaciers, when they, when they are receding, they have a, a, like a, a water flow that comes out underneath the water you can't see that's moving out toward the open ocean as these things are, are moving. And that's why you get these pieces of icebergs and things floating out into the open ocean. So you really got to be paying attention. Um, and you usually are using, again, a, a aluminum boat because you can, you can take a, some good hits, you know, against aluminum. But fiberglass, it's a totally different story. But my buddy had brought this up from the lower 48, and he had it up there. And we decided, hey, let's, we're just going out of Seward. You know, we're going to go out maybe 30, 40 miles, and we'll do some halibut fishing, maybe some lingcod, black sea bass. So we, we had this Zodiac that we had at Cook Inlet, and we turned it upside down. You know, we deflated it somewhat, put it up on the, on the bow, uh, fastened everything down, and so we're ready for some adventure. So we're on our way out. You know, we're passing killer whales. I mean, we had a whole pot of killer whales right beside us. You want to talk about something crazy. When you have those big dorsal fins, you know, six foot, coming up above the boat beside you, and you see the size of these things. And if you've ever seen, like on YouTube or something, how these things hunt, they're scary how they can hunt and pack. They're like wolves. I mean, they're just, you know, a thousand times the size of a wolf. So we're on our way out. We're passing these really cool things. Dolls, porpoises are surfacing beside us. I mean, they're going as fast as we are. You know, we're doing 25 mile an hour or whatever, and they're just keeping right up with us. They're cutting us. I got great footage of this stuff. But we get out past the mouth of, uh, uh, we're out in the mouth of Seward, and we're heading out in the open ocean. We're about 35 miles out probably. The Chillswell Islands are out in this area. And all of a sudden, we 
the motor shuts down. Well, we found out we had thrown a bearing in the motor and we're dead in the water. Now we're running a Ford 460 on this and we just had the one engine. And for whatever reason, we didn't have a backup motor. Uh, we had a 25 horse short shaft for the Zodiac that we had, um, but it wouldn't fit the, the big, the 29 foot boat. It was too short of a shaft. So we're like, okay, what are we going to do here? Well, we're out in the open ocean now. We're, we're not in, you know, in this bay anymore. We're out in the open ocean. And the tide is starting to change and the rollers are starting to come in. We realize we can't play around with this. Um, our electronics, everything we had, everything was, was going down. Like, what in the world is going on here? So he had a little 9.9 short or a, a long shaft like you would have like in a little trolling motor in a, in a lake, you know, that kind of a size motor. And we put it on the back. It's kind of funny to see this big boat with this little 9.9 on the back. But it gave us just enough power. It was the, the Ialic Peninsula curves out around here. It gave us just enough power to get around the tip of the peninsula to try to get away from the storm. And there was a little place. It's called Three Hole Bay. And you've got these little holes back in there where you can get back and, and you get into a safe harborage, you know, if anything happens like this. So we made our way into this one little harbor thinking, you know, someone's going to find us today. You know, that's just a little little glitch, right? So this is day one. Yeah, notice I'm saying day one. This is not going well, right? So here we are, not realizing we really are kind of lost at sea at this point, thus the title. So we get back and we get anchored up. And at the end of this bay, now this bay, there's no shore. There's no sandy beach. There's no place you can get off. These are rock cliffs and they go up hundreds of feet all the way around you. And the water underneath you is just like that. I mean, these cliffs keep on going down hundreds of feet straight into this, into these little bays. But at the very end, there was an avalanche chute where all these boulders, it must probably have been an earthquake or something. There's a lot of earthquakes that happen in Alaska every year that had caused an avalanche chute and all these boulders had come down and we anchored up out in the bay over top of these boulders because we found out that it was only maybe like 100 feet deep rather than, you know, four or 500 like the rest of the bay was. So we get the anchor down in there, and we're just kind of waiting, making a plan. What are we going to do? Well, this is day one, and we figured someone's going to find us. But there was a storm coming in, so it was foggy. So we're going, to ah, probably no one's out. We'll just spend the night in the boat. We got, you know, there's a cabin in this boat. We can get underneath. So we get up the next morning, and um, it's still still pretty foggy out. No one's seeing us. Well, we think someone's going to find us today. Well, that's day two. No one comes. Well, by day three, you know, we've been eating. We've got the, you know, the water we've been drinking that was in the boat and different things. And we're realizing, what if nobody finds us back here? Well, day four gets here. Well, now we realize we're going to have to do something. This is not good. So we're fishing off the back of the boat. And we're, because we're over rocks, it's great. I mean, we have a lot of fish hiding, especially these black sea bass. And we had a, there's a fish called a yellow eye. They, they're a really deep fish. They're bright orange. And we were pulling these things up. And I, I remember pulling this one orange fish up, this, uh, this yellow eye, and I got it to the surface. Now, when the, blo- the bladders inside of these things, when you, when you bring them up, they kind of blow up and they float. Well, that's all it took was just one eagle that saw this out there floating on the surface, still on my line, right? Swoops down, grabs that thing, takes off with it. There goes the line, snaps. Just incredible. We, we actually got some great footage of these things doing this. But we're bringing up fish. We, we're, we're filling things up thinking we might have to have this. Well, we did. And so we're kind of grilling these things out in the back of the boat. Well, day five gets here. Well, by finally, on day five, we had one boat. And again, it was from Miller's Landing, the place I was telling you that we usually go fishing out of. They were back looking for some new fishing spots. 
And from a distance, we saw them. We were able to. I don't remember if Ralph had a flare or whatever he did, but it got the attention of these guys. They came back. And when they got to the, the place, we told them what had happened. And Ralph, who was the owner and captain of the boat, he said, listen, guys, I'm going to go with these guys back to Miller's Landing. You know, it's almost 40 miles back. And it was getting late in the day. And he says, we'll just come back tomorrow with one of their, basically a sea taxi. And we'll tow the boat back. So he left. There was two of us, or three of us, my buddy Wade and his son. So they, they leave. We go to bed. We wake up the next morning. Now, if you remember from the story about the Black Mamba, and I was talking about when Wade said, hey, I got an idea. Whenever he says that, run. Because he's always got some crazy thing he's going to get us in trouble. So Wade goes, hey, we got that Zodiac on the front of the boat, right? They're not going to be back until late today. Let's get the Zodiac off. Let's get it inflated. Let's get that 25-horse Yamaha, that short shaft, put it on there. And let's go about 12 miles across the Ialic Peninsula, where we're at, this whole big bay of water, Ialic Bay. Let's go across the bay because there's a, a glacier on the other side called Holgate Glacier. It's a real famous glacier. And it's about 500 feet from the surface of the water to the top of that glacier. I mean, it's, it's way bigger than you're thinking it is. So we get that, that Zodiac up on step. You know, it's slack tide. There's no waves. We go about 12 miles. We cover it maybe 30 minutes, get to the other side. And when you get to this fjord that leads back to Holgate Glacier, you've got these, these waterways snaking down through the mountains, you know, these glaciers that have been, you know, melting and everything for thousands of years. You, you have these little rivers coming down off the mountains. It, it, it looks like just Jurassic Park. It's just an amazing view. But as we, we get closer and closer to the face of the, the glacier, we have to shut the, the engine off and pull the prop up because now you have pieces of this glacier drifting out past the boat. And what's really cool is they drift by you they sound like Rice Krispies because they're melting, right? This freezing cold water, as it's hitting the air, it's melting. It sounds exactly like a bowl of Rice Krispies. And so it's really eerie because you're kind of hearing the wind. You move through here and you get all these things crackling. And we take the oars out and now we're paddling because we're trying to get closer and closer to this glacier. Well, there's a rock that's at the, the face of this thing, maybe, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred yards max from the front of this glacier. And it was a rock maybe about oh, 120 feet long by 30 feet high. But it was, you know, pretty steep on the sides. So we, we get on the backside of this away from the glacier, knowing that the glacier can calve. So we want to have our zodiac on the backside of that rock in case it does calve. But there's no, there's no trees. There's no bushes. All there are are rocks. So we, we get off the, the zodiac. We, we take the rope. We put it down on top of a boulder, and we grab another smaller boulder, and we put it on top of the rope because we're thinking, well, there's no tie ripping through here right now. We'll be good. So we get the camera gear, and you know, we're climbing. There's little finger holes we find. We get up on the top of this, this rock uh, formation, and we get to the side closest to the, the glacier. And I've told you about Wade. You know, he did stuff for Discovery and BBC and all these things. So he's got one of those voices, you know, like was it David Attenborough's? The killer whale. You know, he's just got this incredible voice you don't forget. So he's going to be doing this whole thing at the face of the glacier, filming, you know, about how these things have, you know, over thousands of years formed and hoping we get, you know, this thing to calve while we're doing this, we're trying to get that footage. So as he's doing his, you know, adventure voice, like he always does, you know, I'm the guy that always comes in and how do we tie this together with, you know, real life? What does this apply to in ourselves? So I've got my notebook and I'm sitting off as he's filming this thing. And as I'm sitting here, what I'm going to be writing down is how the enemy loves to mess with our emotions. You know, he'll, he'll create things that will cause us to have fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, you know, all those things. 
And all of a sudden, I have this thought pop into my head. And it says, you need to go check on your boat. I'm going, where did that come from? That's kind of weird. I tried to ignore it, you know, just fear talking to me, right? Because we did leave our boat, you know, 12 miles across the bay. And we didn't leave a note to tell anybody where we were. How dumb is that? But here we are on this thing. And I hear that voice again. You need to go check on your boat. And I'm thinking, okay, this is the enemy messing because I'm getting ready to talk about unhealthy thoughts, emotions, and actions. And how do we know, you know, if, 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 if a thought that's coming into our head, you know, is it coming from God or is it coming from the enemy? And we're going to unpack that in just a minute. And so as I'm putting these things down on paper, what I want to talk about, I'm trying to ignore that voice that's creating a sense of urgency, a sense of fear. And this time the voice wasn't so sweet. I don't know that it sounded just like that, but here's what I heard in my head. What I heard was, cut the crap. Go check on your boat right now. This was different. Not that God speaks to me like that, but I know his voice. And I knew that this was a voice that I was familiar with my whole life. I didn't say a word, and I thought, you know what? I just need to be obedient. When God calls me to something, and I understand that it is his voice, I need to listen and I need to obey. Well, I mean, what's it going to cost me to, to walk, you know, really maybe 50 feet to the edge and look down and see what the boat, you know, it's okay and everything. And as I'm walking back to the edge and I get right to the edge where we're, I have to climb down over to get to this thing, I hear the whole face of that glacier come unglued. A chunk the size of Walmart comes off and he's filming. We have this all on film. It's really amazing stuff. I mean, it's the size of Walmart and a 20-foot wall of water is now coming toward the island, I mean, fast. So I'm going down this, this rock face as fast as I can. And before I can get to the bottom, that wave comes, a, 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 it wrap, literally wraps around like arms wrapping around that rock, causes that zodiac to lift up in the air. And that prop came out of the water. The boat was so high that the prop was exposed out of the water. That's how high it lifted the back of the boat. But when it went back down, when the water moves past, it literally started sucking the rope out from underneath that other rock we had put on it. And the next thing I look and I see that rope down in the water and there it goes. Now, again, 38 degree water, there's a stream that moves from the glacier out to the open ocean. So once it's gone, it's gone. I jumped down in the water. All I can tell you is I literally threw my arms down in the water and I found the rope and I grabbed a hold of it. And as I started to pull back, the glacier calves a second time. Here comes another wall of water. All I can do is lay back against this rock face, hold onto that rope, and watch that zodiac lift up in the air again and come back down. And so I'm yelling now. I'm like, hey, you've you got to get back here. We, we've got we've to get out of here. This is, this is not a good situation. So I tell him what had happened. We get everything you know, put in the zodiac. Well, we've been there for a couple of hours, and we kind of missed the, the best window to get back to the boat you know, with the boat up on step. You know, where we can just fly across the water. Now we got two-foot rollers coming in, and we have a storm moving in to boot. Well, what took 30 minutes took us over two hours to get back. But once we get out into the middle of this, uh, the Ialic Bay out here, we can't see because we're totally socked in. I can't see the shoreline in front of us that we have to get to to get back into these, this three-hole bay area. We can't even see from behind us where we are. All, literally, we could tell by the way the waves are moving what course to keep going in because we know what the tide was doing. Well, the coolest thing was when we were on the way out of Seward to go out to this location out past the Chiswell Islands, there is like a, a key formation in this rock cliff that juts out um, 
And it, it looks, I, I kept thinking it looked like the empty tomb, you know, where Jesus would have come out of kind of, it looks like a huge a tomb that was roll, rolled away. And as we finally get to the shoreline, I said, just start following the shoreline until we see that keyhole. That's it. That's our spot. We found it. We found our way back and to get into three hole bay. And as we, as we get back closer to the boat, we realize that the, the anchor has now come undone. Now, remember, this is a fiberglass boat. This is not an aluminum hulled boat. And I told you that it was totally like rock cliffs everywhere. So if that boat would start slamming up against these cliffs and we didn't have any way to really motor this thing, you know, it would shatter the, the hull and we're sunk because there's nowhere for us to get off. It's, it's, you know, it's just a bad situation all the way around. So we get there and he realizes, you know, the anchors come out and he's yelling to me, Brent, get out of the Zodiac, get up in there and get down inside the, the hull and see if you can find some other anchor rope down, down in there. So I, I'm certainly, you know, I'm taking kitchen table cushions off. There's some storage units. I find some anchor rope. I come flying up. I'm tying it onto the other one. I'm tying it onto the edge of the boat and I take it and we pull the anchor. I give it to him. Now what he's going to do is he's going to take that Zodiac out away from the boat with the anchor because he's got to get far enough away from the cliff, taking the anchor in the opposite direction because it's all about the angle of the dangle, right? Because he's going to drop it. Well, he starts going out and he just disappears from sight in that thick fog. And all of a sudden, I hear the engine rev, and I hear this ping, and then I hear the engine shut off. And then I hear, whatever you do, don't let go of the rope. I'm like, what happened? The pin sheared off. He had no gears. There was nothing left. So all I could do is now I'm holding onto that rope. I'm pulling him back up to the boat. And as I get him on side, we're like, listen, we're just going to have to shorten the rope. We're going to have to drop it right where it's at and just pray that that anchor holds. Well, you can imagine, you know, if this pin would have sheared off out in the middle of that bay on our way back and we would have had no gears they'd have found us six months later washing up on some japanese beach right so you better be brushing up on your japanese so we got we got down into the bottom of the boat and literally had to spend one more night in there and i i don't know if i've ever prayed harder in my life because we realized no one's coming back yet and if this thing hits the rocks in the dark that's it we really are sunk but it was one of those things where in those instances god has a way of letting us know that he is the one who is in control. No matter what the storms are that we are going through, I learned I can trust him. His anchor always holds. And I'm sitting here telling you this story now and being applying, being able to apply it to what we're getting ready to go into now with bringing this back to the home front because God had a plan for that story. And he had a plan for you, whether you realize it or not, to hear that story. So stay tuned in because what we're going to do now is we're going to take that whole um, adventure, that whole um, journey that we had and discover what does that look like in my life? You know, what would, what would God want me to learn out of some of these situations? Uh, you know, our next episode, um, you know, we're going to be talking about how challenges are gifts. And this is going to be a great episode to lead into that because we begin to discover that those difficult things that we go through in life really do bring us, us closer to God. But the one thing that I know that I discovered on that, when I was on that rock and God says, go check on your boat now, I knew his voice. You know, John 10, 27 says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. You know, if you knew and really believe that there is a God and you learn how to trust him because you know his voice, Aren't you going to listen and follow him when he calls you? Because you do know that he wants what's best for you. You know, that question we were talking about earlier, um, you know, that came in from Don from Illinois. You know, 
these situations that we go through, David, we were talking about David. You know, David had an affair. You know, God, why would God allow for these things? Why would he allow for these storms? Why would he have allowed for all these things to happen? You know, and it really comes down to this. God didn't stop David's affair. Why? Because he loved him. What do you mean he loved him? Wouldn't he have stopped it if he, if he really loved him? No, because he knew that the only way for David to learn the lesson that he had for him was David had to make whatever that level of mistake was to be able to learn that he is not in control, that God is, and that God can be trusted, and that his love is unconditional. And I don't know what you've you know, been through, what kind of storms you've been through, what kind of train wrecks, shipwrecks, whatever in your own life, you've, you've hit a wall, and you think, God, why didn't you stop that? And it's, that's a legitimate question. We all ask that, right? And when we think about sin, you know, we always want to judge people for their sin and shame them. But sin, really, what it is, it's an illegitimate way of getting a legitimate need met. But God allows us, for whatever reason, to go through those storms, that sin that we have, because he wants us to learn something. You can't see until you can see, and you can't know until you truly know. But God will walk you through that storm. So how do we know that? Okay, so here's the question. You'll say, Brent, you heard that voice that was going on from, from God, and you, you said you realized that it was his voice. So how do we know if that voice that we're listening to, is it coming from God? You know, is it coming from the pizza I had last night? You know, where else would it be coming from? Or is it coming from the enemy? Well, here's something I, I wish I'd have known 20 years ago. Um, and every time I speak, you know, for, for men's conferences or whatever, I ask the guys, how many of you have ever been taught this and no one ever raises their hand? Here it is. If the thought that comes into my head, if the emotion that comes out of that thought lines up with the deeds of the flesh, things like fear, worry, doubt, shame, jealousy, all those things, then I know that that thought didn't come from God. The enemy is one one putting those thoughts in my head. Because if that thought is coming from God, my emotions will line up not with the deeds of the flesh like those were. My emotions will line up with the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love, peace, patience, joy, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Where was this? When I was growing up, why did I never know this? Let me say that again so you've got it. When you have that thought pop into your head, you have to look at the emotion that it's creating. Because if that, create, if that, if that emotion lines up with the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, then you know that thought didn't come from God. That thought came, like Jesus says in John eight forty four, it came from the father of lies. But if that thought creates emotions that line up with the fruit of the Spirit, then we absolutely know that it's coming from God. You know, we don't know what to do, you know, so many times when we have, you know, these unhealthy things, you know, just pop into our head. And this is really a great compass um, to understand, you know, what to do with this stuff. And here's the thing. God is the one who gave us emotions. I've heard it said, oh, God, you know, he doesn't give us a spirit of fear. You have to understand the context of what that's talking about. There is a healthy fear. If you see a little boy or your daughter or whatever running out into the street and you see a car coming fast and they're chasing a ball, you better have a healthy fear that's going to cause you to run out and grab that child to protect that child. What about anger? There's a righteous anger. There's a healthy anger. I just saw the movie, uh, oh, what's that, uh, Sound of Freedom. Went and saw that last week. I felt a righteous anger like I've never felt in my life. I cannot believe this child trafficking and everything that they are doing, how it's being so covered up 
it, it made me furious. I, I wanted to stand up and curse. I wanted to throw things. It was a righteous anger. I wanted to do something. I wanted to stop this stuff. But remember, God gave you emotions. So you have to be able to tell the difference. You know, is this a healthy anger? Is this a healthy fear? You know, what is that that I'm going through? But what do we do then? How do we, what do we do with these things? Well, you have to take every thought captive. That's what we're doing. And what does it mean? You know, it's in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 6. It says that we're to take every thought captive. What does that look like? Well, what it really means is you have to learn how to think through what you're thinking. You know, we live in a culture right now that is teaching you what to think as opposed to how to think. And there is a huge difference. We have to learn to think through what we are thinking. And I don't know if you ever, um, there was a book, what was it called? Screw Tape Letters, C.S. Lewis. And in there, you have the Satan, and he's talking to his nephew, and he says to his nephew, he goes, he says, you know how to get these Christians? He says, you just keep their thoughts either in the past or in the future. That's how you get them. Because think about that. If my thoughts are in the past, that's rooted in, um, you know, coulda, woulda, shouldas, right? Regret. If only I'd have done this, my life might be different or whatever. And then you think about future thoughts, those create anxiety. What if I lose my job? What if my my wife leaves me? You know, what if my daughter gets pregnant? What if my son gets on drugs? And here's what I want you to try for a second. If you're driving your car, wherever you are, I want you to think about something right now. I want you to try to have an unhealthy emotion, all right? But here's the condition. You're not allowed to think about anything from your past, and you're not allowed to think about anything from your future, okay? Go. Can't do it, can you? Because, see, when you stay in the present, which is where God wants us to be with him, you don't have unhealthy emotions, because you're not focused on the past and you're not focused on tomorrow. You're staying with where God is right now. Brent, I want you to go check on the boat right now. I knew his voice. That was, it wasn't like, well, what could happen? I didn't even have to go to what might happen. It was an immediate, I knew my father's voice. And it comes back down to, you know, my sheep, they know my voice and they follow me. So I want to encourage you to, you know, to, to begin to learn how to follow God you know, and what do we do? Get, Brent, give me some scriptures that shows me like what you're talking about, you know, how that might tie in so that I can understand this. Well, like I said, 2 Corinthians 10, 6. And I love, you know, I'll, I'll use the NASB or, you know, sometimes I'll use the NIV, but I love when I'm working with guys, especially, I love using the message paraphrase just because I'm not doing it for study's sake, you know, to exegete or something. I'm doing it to really help a, a guy understand. But I love the, the, the message in this one. And it's 2 Corinthians 10, 6. Now listen to this. It says, we use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God. Now hear this, fitting every loose thought, emotion, and impulse, which is the action, into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Now when you go through cognitive therapy, if you've ever been to counseling before, chances are that's what they're doing. And that teaches you that your thoughts create your emotions and your emotions create your actions. It makes total sense. We know how that works. You get a thought in your head. It makes you feel a certain way, and so you act a certain way. But what we're doing is we're learning to take every thought captive now. That's what this is saying. So it's instructing us to use our God tools. Well, what's our God tools? Well, look at Romans 12.2. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now listen, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So whose job is it then 
to, uh, to do the transforming. Is that mine or God's? That's God's. My job is to do the renewing. I am transformed by the renewing. That's how it works. So we use our God tools. We go back and we begin to look at what God says is good, what is pure, which is holy, all those things that we know. So remember, again, God is the one who gave us these emotions. So it's really important that we, we begin to understand, you know, how he's working uh, with all this. So, you know, the, the lies of the enemy, uh, they can clog up your thinking, right? They can leave you feeling, you know, unsure, uh, confused, dazed, maybe in a fog. Um, but none of those things line up with the fruit of the Spirit. So don't confuse, again, unhealthy anger with a righteous anger. Um, you have to understand the difference between those. So let me kind of wrap this up here and kind of bring it back to the home front now. We, we talked a little bit about that, but let me, let me give you a real-life illustration where the enemy went after me with something um, to try to create an unhealthy emotion. I was, I was coming back from, I'm trying to think, was it Harrisburg? I was, or I was flying to Harrisburg from Dulles in D.C., and when the, when the plane left, it was a small plane. You know, I had, it was maybe 18 seats. It was like the one seat on the one side and two on the other, not very many rows. And as I got on the plane that day, um, there was a girl that was behind me. She'd never flown before. And she starts up a conversation. She's really nervous. And so she's talking to me and she's like, man, I've never flown before. We drove up here from Tampa and this is my first flight. And, you know, I don't know what to do. How should I feel? And she goes, what do I do? And I'm like, nothing. I said, you'll be fine. I said, I've thrown, flown hundreds and hundreds of times. You'll be fine. So I explained what it's going to be like when we take off and the G-forces. And so we take off. She stops talking, and I, I'm kind of focused. I'm thinking, hey, I can get a little nap now. i got an hour flight. And as the plane is going up, and they get right about to where they say, you know, you can put your tra- tables and seat backs, you know, back now or whatever you want to do, I'm hearing this sound. And it, it sounded kind of like this. <laughs> Like if you've ever been on a plane, when the plane lands and they hit the brakes and they hit reverse thrusters to try to get, you know, the plane to slow down faster, I'm hearing that sound. But we're not on the ground, right? We are, I don't know what we are, probably at about 26, 28,000 feet by this time. We're almost at the top where we're going to be. And then I began to smell smoke. Now, the flight attendant all the way in the front of the plane hadn't taken off his seatbelt yet. It was a small plane. He's facing us. Well, I'm almost in the very back of the plane, and I'm waving for him to come back. Well, as I'm waving my hand, he puts his hand up and just waves at me like I'm waving at him. I'm like, he doesn't get it. So I'm trying to get him, and he's like, nope. He, he shows me his seatbelt sign. No, that light hasn't come on yet. you got to stay seated. I was like, bag this. I take my seatbelt off. I jump out in the aisle, and I'm waving him back. Well, now he knows something is up. He takes his seatbelt off. You know, everyone's turning around. He comes back. Now he can hear it. Now he can smell the smoke. He goes back to the front, gets on the phone with the pilot. The pilot comes on. Ladies and gentlemen, we need everyone to go to the front of the plane. We need everyone moved up here. And so they're giving us instructions, you know, what's going on. We, we've got a real emergency here. They're not telling us what's going on. We can smell the smoke. We hear the sound. Well, the plane turns around, and they say we're having to go back and make an emergency landing in Dulles. Well, when we're walking to the front of the plane to, to be moved to these new seats, that girl who had been behind me, she grabs my hand and she says, you are not leaving me. Well, we had found out earlier in the conversation before we took off that she was a believer. And we got into talking about, you know, doing ministry and different things. And so there was that thread in common. Well, this is one of those moments, you know, this, this could end bad. So as we get up there, we sit down and she's just holding onto my arm and my, you know, with both of her hands. 
And I finally looked at her, and she was freaking out. And I said, would you like to pray? She says, yeah. So I just began to pray. I said, God, thank you for this opportunity to trust you. And she's probably going, seriously? But I did. I just said, God, thank you for this opportunity to trust you. No matter what happens, everything is going to be okay. So we put this, we put our families, the pilots, everything in your hands right now, whatever your will be done, God, we trust it, and we, we give you glory. Well, we look out the window, and we see all the emergency vehicles. You know, they're coming out to the end of the runway as we're getting ready to land. Plane landed. Obviously, everything was okay. And I walked up to the pilots once we got inside, and I said, hey, I said, what was it? They said, well, you know, we really can't talk about it. And I said, well, here's what I heard. I heard a reverse thruster. He says, oh, you know what that is? I said, yeah. He said, okay, that's exactly what happened. He said, but the odds of this happening are like one in a billion. He says, we have no idea what in the world was going on. He said, it should have torn the whole wing of the plane off. You know, there are some military planes that are designed to do that so they can slow down like right now. He said, it really should have torn our plane apart. I went back and I sat down and that girl comes over and she sits down. I'm telling her what had happened. And she said, how did you pray like that? And I said, what are you talking about? She said, how were you able to put this in God's hand? And it just didn't seem like you were shaking. I said, oh, I was nervous. I'd be lying to tell you if I wasn't nervous. But I had to keep renewing my mind with truth because I knew I was experiencing fear and anxiety, right? Doubt, worry. And I know that in this moment, God has control. And here's all I could think about. That if I die in this plane crash, is that going to cause my children to learn to trust God more or to trust him less? Trust him less. What's the answer? Yeah. They're going to have to learn to trust God more. So here's my final question then. Is trusting God a good thing or a bad thing? You know, when you're lost at sea, you've had your own personal shipwreck, and it just feels like you're being torn apart, you know, night sweats. You're worried about what's going to be going on tomorrow. Remember to stop. God wants you to stay in the present with him. The enemy doesn't get to win. We get to go on the hunt after him. We have the God of the universe inside of us, and no matter what happens, because your identity is in Christ, you're going to be okay. Isn't that a powerful story? Man, that's good stuff. Well, listen, um, I'm excited about these, these podcasts. I hope you'll keep logging in. And here's one thing, if you will do this for us too, as you're listening to these, when you get to the end of, the, of the, each episode, you'll see, uh, maybe you're on Spotify or whatever, you'll see a little place where you can click follow. Please click follow and get on board with us. Share that with your friends. And the other thing is, if you give us a rating on this, you know, be honest about it. You know, if this was a one today, give it a one. If it was a five, give it a five. But we just want to get this message out there. We want to see lives changed. And again, when a man knows who he is in Christ, that he's created in the image of the living God, when he is no longer held captive by the opinions of others or cares whether he lives or dies, that man is now extremely dangerous because he's been unleashed. Remember, we are the resistance, guys. We'll see you next time.